Retirement Blues Goodbye, along Wayne Wright's Coast to Coast Path, a book by Richard Cowley. Chapter 2, Episode 2 St. Bees to Ennerdale Bridge The Dangerous Clifftop Edge And the Zombies of Dent Hill the path resembled the aftermath of a prolonged military bombardment on a front-line trench in World War I, rather than the beginning of one of the world's premier walking tracks. Its neglected state did not bode well for what lay ahead. The cliff-top path was narrow, flat and firm underfoot. It hugged the cliff edge and was in places only inches from a sheer drop through the murk to the jagged rocks three hundred feet below. In the limited visibility, we proceeded with extreme care. With only one very obvious coastal path to follow, it was surprising how frequently we consulted the guidebook. I suppose it was understandable, considering we were still tracking on L-plates with no Aboriginal tracker to guide us. The unmistakable landmark of a hideous cliff-top quarry and a solitary stone cottage were the clues for us to turn inland, away from the coast. A Geordie couple were hovering about, wrestling with their own uncertainty of whether to turn inland or not. The man was a bare-chested sun-worshipper, whilst she was a slip-slop-slap, skin-cancer-phobic type, covered from head to foot like a Saudi housewife. Do you think we turn here, hinny man? The bare-chested man inquired. Because I didn't know. Are you doing the coast-to-coast? -coast? I asked the hoodie. Where are hinny? She replied. I think you're it. The four of us pored over maps and guidebooks to make quite sure that the isolated stone cottage next to the cliff-top quarry was indeed the isolated stone cottage next to the cliff-top quarry where we should turn inland towards the hills. After considerable discussion that taxed roughly ten pounds of grey matter, we agreed that it was the right place to wish the Irish Sea goodbye. We preened and strutted with self-satisfaction in the small village of Sandwith, where an eastward sign read Robin Hood's Bay, 185 miles. We'd walked six miles, made a right turn, and miraculously we're still on Wainwright's path. Ahead of us loomed the broad tor that is Dent Hill. It's an abrupt geological wrinkle thrown up during the grinding gestation of the Cumbrian Mountains. At the foot of Dent Hill, we crossed the River Eam and the evocatively named Miller's Walk, a tag that harks back to an era of water-powered mills, when fermented grain was stone ground into wholemeal flour. Nowadays, most grains are separated from the chaff and straw during harvesting. The efficient process allows no time for traditional fermentation to occur. The flour remains raw and may retain a mix of toxins that were previously removed. The abandonment of field fermentation may be one explanation why nowadays many people find white bread tastes like bleached cardboard. Beyond Blackow Farm, we entered a conifer plantation, following a car track noted as a permissible path. The coast-to-coast -coast trail is only possible because walkers have access to private paths, a much-appreciated act of generosity by the owners. Pleased to be allowed to continue, we started the long trudge to the top of Dent Hill. The sun was high and hot, the car track stony and steep, the climb tough and tiring. It's odd how exhaustion can strain one's confidence and leave one feeling apprehensive and vulnerable. 
lost in the gloomy conifer thicket, we eventually stumbled upon a muddy path snaking uphill through wet, waist-high grass. In an isolated sunny patch, a cheerful mother and daughter were eating lunch. Is this the coast-to-coast path? I inquired wearily. Straight uphill, replied the young woman, then added with a cheeky smile, If your legs don't give up first. Thanks and good day, I wheezed, trudging onward and upward. When on long outings, I find walking at a slower pace than is my natural stride to be both tiring and frustrating. I'm quicker than Peter going uphill, so I traipsed on, pulling further ahead. A few hundred feet higher, the terrain became exposed, rugged, and wild. Gone were the neat, wooded farms, the leafy-hedged meadows, and the dreary evergreen plantations. All was open yellow grassland. The whole expanse was home to a scattering of hardy mountain sheep. Each animal was busy at its lifelong task of turning rough upland vegetation into meat and wool for humans to eat and wear. It's an odd fact that most mountain sheep are shorn for the sheep's comfort, not for the farmer's profit selling wool. Farmers usually make a loss on the wool. Looking back from a high vantage point, I was surprised by the number of hikers that emerged from the cover of the conifer plantation on the lower hillside. They appeared in dribs and drabs, as though bewildered earthquake survivors rising from the rubble. Slowly, with measured and heavy tread, they zigzagged their weary way to the top of Dent Hill, where the stone cairn marked the end of the arduous ordeal. Peter had planned a fifty-mile walk for our first day. Even considering the distance, the coastal section is considered to be one of the easiest days rambling. Trudging up Dent Hill on the first long climb certainly gave pause for thought about our ability to cope with the more arduous sections we would encounter in the Lake District heartland over the coming days. At the cairn, the Geordie couple were finishing their lunch. He lay back soaking up the UV like a snake on a rock, whilst she was busy and bustling, even though sitting down. When Peter lumbered into view, he was dog-tired, vague, and a little disoriented. However, forty winks and a few dried apricots were all that was required to moderate his heart rate enough to put a smile on his face. From our vantage point, the coastal plains stretched out before us. The wide arc skirted the Solway Firth to the north and ran westwards to the Irish Sea. It embraced a dense network of tiny villages, each separated by a mile or so of rich wooded farmland. Surprisingly, when walking across the plain, I'd been comfortable in the belief that we were miles from anywhere. Seen from the Isle of Man, Sellafield appears as the white silhouette of a fortified coast-hugging town, low and close to the horizon. However, when viewed up close through high-magnification binoculars, Sellafield steel structure and tangle of pipework take on the sinister intimacy of a grainy black-and-white wartime newsreel. Peter and I were sitting with her back against the cairn when the two accountants arrived. They looked surprisingly fit, even though they were covered in sweat and breathing heavily. In the open air, even a single whiff of the bald accountant's breath caught me as horribly as a fly-encrusted spider's web formed the face in the dark. The acrid stench emulsified into choking venom, which seared my nostrils and forced retching breath from my lungs. At first, I thought the slapped-up bean counter 
had eaten a second helping of black pudding for breakfast and was trying to pass it off unnoticed. But no, as cagey as a magician, conjuring up a pigeon's egg from mid-air, he'd managed to light up, unseen. Even on the exposed hilltop, he smoked with the languorous style of a 1930s lounge lizard, a poseur who delighted in the slow theatrical gesture which brought cigarette to lip for an eyes-closed ecstatic inhalation, the telltale trademark of an unapologetic nicotine addict. The disgusting intrusiveness of a single tortured breath was enough for Peter and me. We exchanged a glance of revulsion and made off, gulping deep draughts of fresh mountain air as we went. In no time the breeze cleansed our skin and decontaminated our clothing of the cloying stench. Ahead, the Geordie couple were travelling fast across the boggy hilltops towards a dark pine plantation. The abrupt descent to Nannycat Gate compressed hikers into a slow conga line reminiscent of the meandering column of Himalayan Sherpa porters slowly picking their way down the steep mountainside. Usually, walking in the countryside bestows a marvellous feeling of freedom and a sense of being alone and one with nature. At other times, a hilltop or farm track can seem overcrowded with only a single person in view. A large concentration of walkers usually means a bubble of chatter that can smother the liberation of open space and stifle the illusion of solitude. With this in mind, I held back to avoid being absorbed in the bunch up ahead. The trail followed the waters of Nannycat Beck along the steep-sided overhang of Flatfell Screeves. Through geological time, the stream had cut deep into the earth, providing a sheltered gully for varieties of plants that would struggle to survive on the open moorland. No breeze entered the narrow cutting, leaving the still air hot, making breathing difficult. Later, a car glided silently by on the skyline above, a surreal reminder that all day we had never been far from civilization. After only a few hours in the open countryside, the sudden appearance of something as commonplace as a car seemed oddly intrusive, an affront to our pre-industrial sensibilities. The Kinneyside Stone Circle is a true anomaly. In a countryside littered with reminders of prehistoric occupation, these particular stones weren't heaved into place by a mob of blue-painted Celts several thousand years ago. The stone circle was built in the 20th century by a local academic. Why he did it is uncertain. Perhaps he was leaving a stone marker as a mute statement that he'd lived. Unfortunately, the bogus stone circle could be confusing. A postdoctoral Eskimo researching prehistoric land use in the Cumbrian region in a hundred years' time may be hoodwinked by the stone circle and send regional history down a blind alley. Further on, we joined a footpath that was unique in my experience. The path is raised ten feet above the road, placing walkers and motorists in separate spaces. My feelings of equanimity ended suddenly with the blast from the horn of a little blue car that passed by on the road below. Fancy a lift, sailor! mocked Colleen, with her head poking out of the car window. "'No, thanks,' replied Peter cheerily. "'We'll see you at the Shepherd's Arms.'